0: Thank you for joining us as we elevate the Black entrepreneur experience by interviewing CEOs, thought leaders, innovative thinkers, and Black entrepreneurs across the globe. I'm your host, Dr. Francis Richards, a community based sociologist and criminologist, educator, researcher, founder, and CEO of 365 Diversity. Welcome, Dr. Dennis. Thank you so much, Dr. Francis. our audience such a brief bio why don't you fill in the gaps and share with our audience what you'd like them to know about you and your
1: yes so my business is based in centuries of black activism and knowledge on the western hemisphere alone and hundreds of thousands of years of african Knowledges around the world. And I always highlight that because as a professor and as working in nonprofit, I always want people to know that this work for inclusion, equity, and justice has existed before the acronyms DEI, DNI existed, before there were DEI tr- committees, before all this stuff got mainstream success and people started making all this money with New York Times bestsellers and stuff. There are Black people and Indigenous people in particular who have been doing justice work. And one thing many of our Black elders, like my parents, will explain is that they actually started doing racial justice trainings, particularly for white liberals in the 1960s and 1970s. So they want us to understand this is not a new concept, So with my business, my business is literally based in changing school curriculum, changing school materials, changing businesses in terms of who human resources offices are supposed to really represent. I change communities. I change medical and health organizations and and facilities. And so I'm doing the work based on outcomes for my business, we're not gonna sit in for two hours and talk about how do you define racism. Instead, we're changing your policies, we're doing annual assessments, and we're making some outcomes so that people can't be stuck in concepts, theories, and promises. So that's what I do. And I my models are discuss diversity daily, not your typical diversity training. And I have those models because, mottos rather, Because people have a tendency to debate over how you define diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. They share images all over the Internet of here's the difference between equality and equity. And I tell people you can waste your entire life talking about definitions and putting drawings of the difference between equality and equity and say, we don't want diversity, we want equity. But all of those specifications are a waste of time because you're not focusing on outcomes. You're spending the rest of your life on definitions. So now we have real work that has to get done beyond wasting your time in book clubs and talking about how do we define terms. So thank you.
0: So that's really interesting. And when you talk about the DEI work and the difference between what you're doing and what corporate America is saying they're doing. Do you find that um, there's a lot of corporations wanting to do the real thing? No. Uh, I will
1: say that 99% of corporate America is not doing anything. So I will say there are some businesses, and that's corporate high-level businesses that are doing some work in terms of doing some donations of some sort. But we also have to remember when we're talking about capitalism, there's oftentimes an incentive when the corporations are doing donations. There's a tax incentive or any other kind of incentive. And so this is where I just tell people that when we're talking about making changes, we want to understand that it's not a change if you say like you're bringing in more people, but you're doing it for the large incentive of profit. Because profit that might still harm people, because the people you're bringing in are probably not getting a whole lot of benefits and resources, you're perpetuating the injustices and oppressions. So that's where I always have to tell people you have to have honest dialogue, look at the policies and practices. And I also tell employees for schools, businesses, and organizations that human resources is not there for you. The lawyer, works for the company, they're not there to protect you. So this is where I always also help employees find resources and services to protect themselves from policies.
0: Talk about your why and your how. I want you to talk about your why, but how did you start this? So my why
1: is that... As I mentioned earlier, my work is based on centuries of justice work, much that, much of it people will never hear about. It's not in history books. It's not taught in most classes around the world. And, and also, I'm born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, which is the second capital confederacy. And so when I explain where I'm born and raised, it's important because, of course, Monument Avenue, which is now called Arthur Ashe and people celebrated the monuments being taken down, but I always tell people, when a monument, a Confederate monument is taken down in 2020, 2021, Black people in particular do not need to celebrate that. That's really a bottom barrel thing for a larger picture of what Black people demand after five centuries. Moreover, When cities and states remove these monuments, they might still never remove names from statues and buildings. But I always tell Black people and also Indigenous people when we're talking about tearing down Christopher Columbus monuments, you also want to ask the funds. Taking down those monuments and names from buildings, it's not free. So that money is coming from somewhere. So this is where I tell people to ask the cities and states for audits some kind of financial statements so now we can make sure that the money's not coming from indigenous communities and black communities that's a form of punishment in the 1970s and 80s when black people in Richmond in particular demanded those monuments removed we were told by the city officials that it's so expensive if we take it down we'll have to take money from black schools. So that's always been the threat. So that's the why in terms of why I do what I do. This is the real work before this stuff was like trendy work and and profitable work with New York Times bestsellers. And the how is in a similar way as well. The how is, I don't believe in bias trainings. I don't believe in wasting time talking about people's prejudices and bias. Because when we're talking about power, power is not, does not vary by kindness. It does not vary by politeness. It does not vary by people's intent. They can have the best intent, but their power still comes into play. And so when we're talking about changing school curriculum, for example, it's very common for white liberals to say they are adamant about increasing more stories of, of slavery and talking about that's real history that must be learned. And that's when I say, well, wait a second, black people are not just formerly enslaved people. We literally are five centuries of knowledges, sciences, mathematics, writings, sociologists and criminologists, such as myself on Western Hemisphere alone. And we're descendants of hundreds of thousands of years of African knowledges around the world, African mathematics. The original mathematics were actually Drawings and visual illustrations of art from indigenous people, aboriginal people, Asians, Africans. Much of it stolen by white people and presented as created by white people, and much of it stolen by white people and discarded as not considered intellectual by white people. So that's why I always explain the how has to be beyond making people feel comfortable, beyond feeling like you have to thank people for their work, I tell people I don't believe in a such thing as ally. I don't believe in a such thing as white ally, cisgender ally, heterosexual ally. The list goes on. And people who are concerned about being celebrated as an ally are more invested in themselves than they are in real changes. So my how is a challenging way to demand measurable and lasting changes, to do annual assessments with schools, businesses, and organizations. A lot of times schools, businesses, and organizations will claim they don't understand assessments. And I say, well, you do assessments to exist. You do school accreditation assessments. Libraries do annual assessments for their content every single year. I know that as faculty who created an academic program in 2011. Businesses do accountant and tax assessments. So places know how to do assessments, they're just not accustomed to having to do it for demographic and cultural equity and justice. So that is the why and how.
0: Talk about critical race theory and education.
1: Why is the question. <laughs> uh, all right. So people oftentimes wanna ask me about critical race theory So that's a theory from the 1980s. It's particularly presented by Black theorists at that point who are law professors and law law students. But I also wanna highlight that Black people have five centuries of theories in the Western hemisphere and hundreds of thousands of theories, hundreds of thousands of years of theories around the world. So critical race theory is one of many, 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 many theories that Black people have constructed And there's actually decades of theoretical writings, theoretical research. So we have critical race theory, research that's been published talking about white men getting a mortgage loan. We literally, if you go to a library search engine, look under critical race theory, you will find publications from the 1980s, 1990s and 2000s before critical race theory was a hot topic on social media and the news. With that said, 99% of people who ask me about critical race theory only care about critical race theory because white liberals are now interested and white conservatives are now interested. It's a very anti-Trump versus pro-Trump topic. It does not really care about whether curriculum are changing because we already know that there's no such thing as any school that uses critical race theory in terms of K through 12 public and private schools. In colleges and universities, some of us use critical race theories for some courses, but we use it just like we use any other theory. Most law schools do not use critical race theory, despite the fact that critical race theory being originated with a law school faculty. So with that said, critical race theory is also an excuse. So teachers, school decision makers, and school officials, particularly white liberals, who are being told they can't use critical race theory, are pretending that not being able to use critical race theory means that they cannot change the curriculum in schools. That is a scapegoat of white liberals, white progressives, white Democrats, white libertarians. They could always change the curriculum. They don't have to use critical race theory to do that. The same way we can change employee resources and human resources without using Karl Marxian's conflict theory based on anti-capitalism. So whenever I explain critical race theory, I say critical race theory is actually not the point. The outrage is not even about a theory. The outrage is about change and critical race theory is the catchphrase. 99% of people on both sides of the debate have never, ever, ever, ever read the theory. They don't know anything about the theorist, Derrick Bell. And even Kimberly Crenshaw, who's one of the extenders of the theory. And they have not read any of the years of research about the theory. So that's why I always tell people critical race theory is a distraction. It's not the real issue. And it's not the real topic.
0: Talk about chow-free by choice. All right. So thank you.
1: So I am... Child-Free by Choice, permanent Child-Free by Choice, and I conducted the first known study around the world of Child-Free by Choice Black people, and I also created and taught the first known Child-Free by Choice course, and so my students ranged in reproductive decisions. Some students had children, some students planned to have children, and some students wanted to have children and could not have children. So we often call that childless and some students are child-free. And so child-free is a reproductive choice. And unfortunately, many people, particularly when looking at gender, they think that that girls and women only exist to reproduce. And they'll oftentimes use religion as an explanation for that. And this also is shaped by employers. For example, what does it mean when you have employee policies regarding family leave, but the family leave is only if you have children, and especially biological children, so not only adopted children? So child-free work is based on overall reproductive rights, reproductive justice, and also an understanding of birth control. So when people are talking about the political debates now regarding abortion access, and we're talking about safe abortion access, and when people are debating about birth control, they're using a very European, white, and particularly USA, Canada, Europe perspective that pretends that Black and brown people around the world for hundreds of thousands of years have not had birth controls. So that's another issue as well when talking about reproductive rights and being child free. Ever since humans have existed, there have been various reproductive options and birth control creations that includes natural approaches and also forms of medicine as well. And so when we talk about child-free, when dealing with people of African descent, it's very common for people to say, well, if you're not having children, then you have fallen for white people they've told you not to reproduce our people anymore and and uh, they've called it things like genocide and ethnic cleansing similar to when they're talking about access to planned parenthood so i've been on planned parenthood committees as well and so i explained to black people this is not genocide and ethnic cleansing it's called extending black freedom to understand that black free that blackness first of all is not synonymous with oppression black history is not just starting with enslavement around the world. And therefore, Black sexual freedom and reproductive freedom includes just that, freedom. Never should we feel we have to feel obligated to have children. And that also includes people with health conditions that are more susceptible to having a miscarriage, dying in birth, And also a lot of black people have issues with fertility, including boys and men, and they won't admit that either. So child-free work, particularly for black people is an expansion of the mainstream child-free work that is mostly European white people. It's difficult to find books, publications and podcasts in which the child-free people are black people. So I'm adding to that access for all of our people. I tell black people having children, do that, but make sure it's because you really want this, not because your mama told you to do it. Because trust me, once children are here, they are here. And never should a child feel and know that they are had out of an obligation on your part.
0: We just want to welcome um, our listeners. And if any of our listeners have any questions, feel free to um, let us know. Let's talk about Suicide and marginalized communities. And we were just, well, we found out in the news about um, Regina King's son committed suicide. So we would like to extend our condolence to the family. Talk about suicide in marginalized Okay. So uh,
1: rest in peace to Alexander Jr., So I specialize in Black suicide and Black suicidal self-harm as well, and also Black mental health. So suicide is not always directly related to mental illness, so I want to highlight that as well. And my line sister died by suicide this past August. And so regarding Black suicide in particular, when I do presentations with suicide prevention organizations, I always do two things in multitasking first explain to black people that suicide is not a white people thing so if anyone's interested in reading my piece that i wrote for the conversation a few years ago it's called suicide is not a white people thing one thing people need to know about me is i put language exactly how it is i don't use minced words if i'm talking about suicide is not a white people thing that's exactly what i put there and I say suicide, suicide is not a white people thing because literally when you do suicide prevention trainings, presentations, including in schools, religious institutions, anywhere, a lot of times people will say, Black folks will say in particular, oh, we're not white, we're not killing ourselves. And then I have to highlight famous Black people who've died by suicide. Don Cornelius, I mean, the list goes on, unfortunately. And so when I do presentations for organizations, I have images of ever since the 1970s, Ebony magazine started doing stories about Black suicide. So if suicide is not happening, Ebony magazine, which used to be one of the central locations for us to read, would not be having stories. One image of the story was of a Black man jumping out of a building window. So it's real. Suicide is real. Even if someone did not die by suicide, it doesn't mean that they're not thinking about suicide. They could be attempting suicide. Attempting suicide can include doing intentional overdoses, but you happen to survive, right? And so a lot of times with the work that I do, it's looking at Black people who are literally struggling every day. You can tell they're struggling, and a lot of these Black people are not getting the help they need for various reasons, including the fact that Most medical and health facilities lack any ability to reach Black people, truly. Suicide helplines are very helpful. I tell people to call helplines. But remember, suicide helplines are based on whom you can reach on the other side. So this is why we have more Black people who are volunteering for suicide helplines, because we want to reach people whose suicidal thoughts are very much connected to Black culture. So therefore the language they use is something that Black people will understand what it means even more. And so when we're talking about dying by suicide, I've done presentations and trainings where I use Ibu's Landing. So Ibu's Landing is when you're looking at our Ibu people from West Africa who jumped off of a slave ship during transatlantic slavery and they died in the ocean. And so there's many arts, uh, many illustrations and posters that you find Africans around the world drawing Eboo's Landing. Now, how that's defined varies by race also, because it's very common for white people to call that suicide, but it's very common for black people to call that escaping. When I do trainings for black people in particular, some black people are offended that I use Eboo's Landing, Because they'll be like, well, what else would you do if you were forced on a ship and you didn't speak these languages and know what's happening? I said, well, that's still a form of suicide, though, because we can look at people like Emil Durkheim when they talk about different types of suicide in the 19th century. It includes suicide as a form of trying to make sense to what's happening. Suicide as a form of escape. Like I said before, suicide does not mean you have a diagnosable mental illness. It can mean that this is what makes sense to you for the moment. And there are some people who have attempted suicide and they survived the next day and they're thankful that they survived because they'll admit that when they attempted suicide, they were just looking for a form of escape. So I always encourage Black people, instead of trying to prove a point, instead of trying to prove you're a strong Black woman, I don't believe in strong Black women in the first place, but instead of trying to prove that, Instead of trying to prove your black manhood, instead of trying to prove you're a hardcore Christian or a hardcore Muslim or whatever the case may be, get help. Because the black folk you're trying to impress and trying to pretend you're not feeling suicidal are not going to be there to help you when you really need it. Stop trying to impress other people. Stop trying to pretend you don't have these feelings seek help, and there's many people you can contact. There's also myself, of course, you can contact me, but you can also contact people like Dr. Nadia Richardson. This sister is amazing. She has the No More Martyrs, M-A-R-T-Y-R-S. Am I spelling that wrong? Martyrs. Uh, So when you go to No More Martyrs website, you can find information particularly for Black women regarding mental health and suicide. And so there are Black people also on every continent in Jamaica, continent of Africa and Europe who are doing work for Black suicide and Black mental health and overall Black health. And we create our own spaces because the most funded, most celebrated spaces, guess what? They tend to be white people and white enough people. And they tend not to change stuff to know how to really reach us. They want us to accommodate them, and that's not how services need to happen. So thank you so much.
0: Fill in the blank. Thank you, pandemic, because...
1: Thank you, pandemic, because you have reiterated what Black folks have said for centuries and indigenous people have said for centuries that there's five centuries of scientific racism, medical racism, and, and uh, health racism around the world. Five centuries. And that's important to highlight because one thing that irks me is that during COVID, people are like, oh my goodness, there's discrepancy in this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's five centuries of discrepancy, right? It's it's five centuries of the same thing. It's just the new hot topic, but it's literally, just like we talk about critical race theory, this is literally the same problem for centuries. It's just the new hot topic that people get attention with. And then after that attention has gone, they go back to pretending they don't know the problem. Same thing with COVID issues. And I say the same thing for people who are doing this whole pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine debate. I reach Black people without preaching to Black people about vaccine. I provide resources. I tell Black people I'm full vaccinated. I'm booster shot. I show photos of all of that. But still, I'm not one of those people who will say, if you're not vaccinated, you deserve to die. And I hold Black people accountable for subscribing to that white liberal standpoint of mocking. The same way I tell people, don't say vote or die. Don't say vaccine or die. We as American people, whether we're here because of slavery or whatever the case may be, we should never, ever, ever perpetuate inequities. If we have five centuries of medical racism, health racism, scientific racism, do not be foolish enough to believe that the vaccine is truly accessible to everyone equally. Never believe that That everyone can get fully vaccinated, booster shot, and that includes those with disabilities that are not tested on the vaccine. I explain this to people all the time. There's also been results where unfortunately people have been getting false vaccines or expired vaccines. This has also happened in parts of the world that are majority Black, and that's intentionally like that. So I tell people, instead of screaming about the vaccine and laughing at people dying or people being diagnosed with COVID, don't do that. That's ridiculous. Instead, tell people, if you can't get vaccinated for whatever reason, let me give you access to clean N95 masks. Let me help you know how to distance from people, even if you have to work on the job. Let me get you some hand sanitizers. You know, do all this work instead of waiting for politicians and political parties and the government and Biden and them to care about our lives because they will never, this is what Black people and communities have to do. Don't ever join a category. The same way, don't join these political categories and be anti-Black if they don't vote for who you want them to vote for. Don't be anti-Black because some people are not going to get vaccinated unless they're required by law to do so. Because dividing our people perpetuates the divisions that have already been going on for five centuries.
0: If someone's listening and they want to connect with you, what is the best way, Dr. Dennis, for them to connect? Thank you. So they can connect with me
1: through 365diversity.com. And I put the word connect in asterisks and all that wonderful stuff, because I want people to understand what connect means Do not contact me to ask me what you should do. First, ask yourself what you're already doing and then ask yourself what you should do. And then you can contact me to see if you can hire me for changing curriculum, changing policies, changing your annual assessments. We can make some real changes. I'm not going to discuss how you define racism or any of that other stuff. I'm not going to discuss your favorite New York Times bestseller anti-racism book. I'm actually doing some real changes, and this is the uncomfortable stuff where you might lose some friends, family, you might lose a career opportunity, and that's what I do. So don't contact me if you want a token or someone who's in compliance, because I'm not
0: What was that aha moment that you knew your business was going to be successful?
1: When I decided to change how I define success. And this is something I always tell black people who are on LinkedIn and other networking sites in which they have to really accommodate white people. So you're claiming you're anti-racism, but you have to say it in a way that white people will continue to smile. You have to be honest with your purpose. If your primary goal is to profit and become wealthy from an equity business, you have to realize the oppressor is not going to build your wealth. Okay? White people are not going to pay you to dismantle white power. Men are not going to pay you to dismantle male dominance. Cisgender people, heterosexuals, capitalist wealthy people, they're not going to pay you and make you a New York times bestseller profitable to dismantle their power. That's never going to happen. So once I had to realize that my business success is not based on what a lot of people have been posting on these LinkedIn's and all that stuff, boasting about themselves. I just had to be honest with my authentic historical foundation of black knowledge black knowledge that got our people lynched, black knowledge that got our people's books stolen, discarded and put in white people's names. My work is authentic. And yes, a lot of people, including a lot of of black people will not like my work because I'm not helping them make that quick money. But I tell them I'm contributing to changes to the world in my lifetime. Humans have existed for hundreds of thousands of years. These inequities have existed based on these categorical distinctions for hundreds of thousands of years. These are not gonna go away in our lifetime, but what we do is what our Black ancestors do. We lay the foundation for change beyond just making money. And every generation after us pulls from our work. Our work is not based on being celebrated by white people, just like when we're talking about gender equity, That work is not based on transgender people being celebrated by cisgender people and girls and women being celebrated by boys and men. It's not equity and justice if you're celebrated by the oppressor you just finished criticizing. So, my business is based in this real work that's not about word
0: games to keep the oppressors happy. So, Dr. Dennis, you're having some really, some very raw and real conversations. And around the work that you 're doing, how do you feel that you 're moving the needle forward
1: i 'm moving the needle forward because i 'm actually challenging adults to actually learn and hold themselves and each other accountable. So many people have been accustomed to spending their time networking and and not even oftentimes focusing on their own family because you know a lot of times when we 're talking about oppression people say they have to keep that job to pay their bills. But then you ask them, how much time do you spend with your family? And they don't even have time with their family. So I always have to tell them, you got to really create a list of what's your hierarchies and rankings of importance in your life. Same thing. I tell school teachers who are leaving schools because of COVID, you know, what about previously in your career when there's problems with the curriculum, but you said you had to pay bills. That's why you stay there. And so I just, I just tell people to just think about that. And so I'll just, I'll just pause right there because in thinking about that, sometimes I just have to stop talking so that people can't hide behind my words. Instead, they really have to have silence in my presence. And.
0: And what is your take about the educators with the great resignation and exiting in droves, what do you think the future of our children is going to be because
1: it 's the same as it 's always been. School curriculum in most of the world has always been messed up. American schools have always been messed up we 've always been taught white people's version of history, white people's form of mathematics and sciences, arts and literatures. I'm a product of predominantly Black, rich and public schools. They taught us Robert K. Frost and prologue of Canterbury Tales, but we're a room of Black folk. So why am I learning the prologue of Canterbury Tales? Like, I'm not thousands of years of African poetry, right? So to me, COVID is just the same thing as centuries of problems. Teachers who have left they now find support to leave, but I always tell teachers, because, and this is the difficulty with changing schools, teachers blame principals, principals blame school officials, school officials blame the accreditors and the politicians. These are grown folk blaming each other like this is on the playground. So this is why I hold all of them accountable with no exceptions, because they're absolutely fine when they're getting their salary and things are peaceful. It's when something more overt like COVID happens that they not only need help, but they know that they'll get support for getting that help. Whereas previously, if they had demanded changes because of the horrible curriculum that they've been teaching all these years, they know that they'd be by themselves because Most Black teachers, unfortunately, they'll complain about the curriculum. They'll say, yeah, I'm still teaching Christopher Columbus, and I'm still teaching that white folk gave knowledge to Black folk. They'll complain behind the scenes, but they still comply with that at the forefront, including the teachers at our Black schools, in Richmond public schools. So to me, COVID is just a more overt reason for escape. But like I always tell teachers, I'm not going to celebrate you for this escape because I hold you accountable for why you were still staying there before this. I mean, schools will not change if you're going to comply. Why did teachers think that the school was going to do the right thing regarding COVID when the school was always messed up and you stayed there regardless? This is what we talk about with capitalism. The capitalists, because, you know, capitalism is not just about having wealth. It's about having profit and wealth through exploitation of labor. That's what capitalism is. So that's, I always have to distinguish that because people think that being anti-capitalism means we all got to be poor, right? No, that's not what anti-capitalism is. It means we can build wealth as black people without oppressing anyone, right? So the same thing applies when we're talking about schools. When teachers comply to the messed up accreditation, when teachers comply with the messed up curriculum, when teachers comply with the messed up school tests and other problems, and they use whatever excuse to comply, they can't act confused when the capitalist school officials don't change anything. So now COVID happened. Why do you think they would change anything when you complied before this? So this is just like basic understanding of how change happens. If you comply the whole time, even after doing professional development sessions, the school officials are going to assume that you're going to comply now. So this is why I always tell people you have to do a cost benefit analysis at all times, not just when a problem is trending on social media and you feel like you've gotten permission to be out.
0: Tell me why 365 Diversity? In terms of the name or the overall existence? Both.
1: All right. So the existence is because, again, my work is based on centuries of Black work before this became trendy and popular and and all that stuff. Again, my parents are part of the Black activists from the 1960s and 70s who actually were doing Racial justice trainings for white liberals. So that's why they always remind us that these trainings are not new. Black folk have literally explained all this to white people for 50 years. So when white people say they need a training to understand definitions and stuff, that's a distraction to waste our time. So the work that I do is based on this understanding what black folk have already done, most of it for free, free labor been very generous. We've been very patient with the people who've been harming us to help them understand. But now we have to be honest and know that they actually do understand. Now they just need to be understood of what we're no longer going to tolerate and accept across the board. So that's why I do 365 Diversity as a business, because for years I started critiquing these trainings as faculty. I used to be annoyed that i was in these trainings for anti-racism gender stuff and faculty white faculty in particular were allowed to compare us to dogs they would say well i used to be scared of dogs but i'm no longer scared of dogs and i'm like you know what if you can't say race specifically then you definitely should not be in a training in the room with me and then one day a business advisor said you know dr dennis you're very critical of all these trainings and all this stuff why don't you start creating your own work that you know is providing real solution based work and not just a bunch of people wasting time venting and then going to lunch together? And I said, thank you. So it took me 10 years to do consulting work. I always spent most of my days doing volunteer work in our communities on board of directors. And then eventually I decided to stop being a black woman doing free labor because black women do a lot of free labor. I chose 365 Diversity as a title because despite what people do in terms of debating how they define diversity, the fact remains that literally the outcome is what we demand, no matter what words you use. And 365 is one of my models, discuss diversity daily. So there's 365 days in a year, sometimes 364 apparently, right? But equity work is not just at a training. So, With the work that I do, whether I'm on board of directors and committee meetings, I talk about this work every day. A lot of times people are mad at me because they're like, why are you discussing this now? Why don't you work? Why don't you wait until we do a training? I said, well, that's not authentic because if you want black folk to be quiet about problems until you decide to do a training, whenever you decide that, then that just goes to show this is just your resume builder. This is just a way to shut up Black people. And then after the training, you want us to shut up again because you said, well, we did the training, what else do you want? So literally my work is every day. I talk about problems when I see it. As Black folk, we're accused of fussing all the time, but literally we're quiet a whole lot because that's how we're taught all of our lives to survive and to not always be punished. There's a lot that we tolerate. There's a lot that we accept. So 365 Diversity encourages minoritized groups, and especially Black and brown groups that include people with disability, LGBTQIA, includes females, girls, women, religious minority groups, and all over the board. 365 Diversity is just reiterating, this equity work is not based on trainings. When I do trainings, I change policies and we do annual assessments. I tell people we're not going to spend an hour talking about how y'all define this. I refuse. Y'all got to talk about definitions before you hire me as a trainer. This is where I, I challenge adults to hold themselves accountable so that by the time they get to me, they're actually ready to change some stuff and to change curriculum and we're not going to debate over how we define racism, because I'm going to tell you at the forefront, there's no such thing as racism against white people. And so when you come to my training, I'm not going to let white people cry and pretend to be racially oppressed. So now we're going to move on to change the policy. OK, and that's how I operate. So that's why it's 365 Diversity. It's daily. It's not just real talk. It's actually real changes. Right. Right. Like Andre 3000 said from, from OutKast, he said, if you, ta- if you say real talk, I probably won't trust you because too many people say real talk because they pretend they want real dialogue, but they know they're going to censor you regardless. And they know that you're going to run your mouth, but at the end of the day, they're not going to change anything. So this is why we're beyond running our mouths and we're actually changing some stuff so that you can't say that you want something to happen. Instead, I want to hear what are you doing And even if you lose some friends and family and all that stuff, that's how real change
0: happens. And that's 365 diversity. What is your your zone of my genius? I'm sorry, can you say that again? What is your zone
1: of genius? Oh, existing. My zone of genius is just merely existing. Um. Yeah, I mean, in general sense, I would say genius is based on being knowledgeable and informed beyond what is taught in schools. And this includes in PhD programs. I tell Everyone, and especially Black people, if what you know is just based on what you're taught since preschool and what you learned in your PhD program or medical degree program or law school program, if you only learned from what the teachers told you to learn, if you only learned the books that you found in the library even and you never went to a Black bookstore that has thousands of books that you will never see in anyone's library, then that is not any kind of genius. Genius is when you are countering what are people, what are, what you're told is normal. Cause we're always going to be told something is normal. If it's celebrated, only things are celebrated are things that do not challenge the mainstream. The mainstream is the oppressor. So this is why I just explained people. Genius is when you're actually learning some things that really challenge yourself. You're going to find out that you might not be as knowledgeable as you thought, because none of us will ever learn half of what we should learn as humans. Right. And genius also means that you know when to work towards change and you also know when to take many rests. You have to know when to rest because risking our own lives makes us a horrible role model. You can't tell Black people to focus on health, knowledge, and wealth, but then you're harming yourself in the same sense. So to me, genius is not just about business model because too many successful business people including black business owners owners are sacrificing their own life for their business and i don't think that's a good model to follow at all
0: what is the one intention you want to achieve this so this year
1: i am remaining focused on my health my family's health and i am remaining focused on community work, and community visibility. And that is where I've always been. Even when I was a full-time professor still in North Carolina, I always just focused most of my work on the communities. And I always highlight that because a lot of times when you own a business, people think that you're always going to be thinking about how you're going to make money. And this is where I just tell people you have to think about why does your business exist in the first place? Yes, you do have to make money, but you just have to also say, is money the most important thing when there's actually a purpose for your business? And, and so that's just, you know, what my focus will remain. My focus will remain being authentic to myself, to my purpose. Um, it's very difficult to find like chambers of commerce and in, in cities and states that know how to reach people whose work is based in actions beyond networking for money. So, so the work that I do also connects with other Black-owned businesses that are based in connecting also with Black nonprofits. And it doesn't mean that we're Black-only in terms of only reaching Black people, but we're not hypocrites. We're not going to be pro-Black and then reach anti-Black people as well for profit. Um, I tell people, no matter your excuse, a lot of people will will get money and grants from anti-Black schools and anti-Black businesses and individuals. And they'll say, well, at least it's like reparations. Actually, it's not. It's not like reparations because they get tax deductible and they get to say that they're your savior. So this is just one thing that I've always taken from my approach to be honest with myself. And that honesty is also very counter to what you'll hear in trainings in like chambers of commerce and stuff as well.
0: Dr. Dennis, if you conducted this interview, what is the one question you would have asked yourself? I want you to ask the question.
1: So, Dr. Dennis, how difficult is it to actually collaborate with other business owners? Well, thank you for asking that. The difficulty in connecting with other business owners is that many business owners oftentimes abandon social justice issues when trying to advance their business. And that's a very common concern when, for example, you can talk about businesses that profit from the racist classes, city design, and you ask them, how can you profit from a design of a city that's actually harming people? They'll say, well, I make money. So... So that's my answer to my own question is, is how do you balance interacting with other business owners? You have to balance by realizing that a lot of people are just in it for profit while also harming the environment, harming other people. And so that's why I think business designs have to be different based on different goals and different models.
0: Is there a social cause tied to your business? A social cause? Right.
1: Yes. So uh, I've really explained that and uh, people can find more information about that on 365 Diversity. So my social causes include changing the curriculum K through 12, including private and public and colleges and universities, changing libraries. And those are social causes because What's accessible in schools shapes everything about people's lives since preschool. I also do work to change medical and health organizations and facilities to change what is learned in diagnostical diagnostical statistical models. And and I also do community-based work where we increase resources in our community so that we don't need police presence as much. Because most of the funds go into police and military, and we need the funds to go into communities, but that's not going to happen probably for another century, possibly. So we as Black people need to focus on where we're spending our money, who we're supporting, who we're helping, and police are not first responders. So police and EMS are not comparable. Police are not fire department. They're not, even when trained in mental health services, police are not mental health professionals. So they should not be the first people to contact if there's a mental health crisis in your communities or in your families or at your schools. That's important to highlight because it's very common for K-12 schools to contact police if a student in particular is having a mental breakdown. You do not want police to come, which includes SROs as well, school resource officers, because even if they're trained, in mental health, they might not really know how to help people. So those are my social justice focuses. I never just put one focus because literally these all coexist and they all interlock 24, three, six.
0: We've come to the part of our interview, it's called um, Rapid Round of Fun. I'm going to ask you some questions and I'd like you to give me very quick answers. If there's something you desire not to answer, feel free to say pass. You ready for the rapid round of fun? Yes. Your favorite color? Crimson. Your favorite holiday? There is none. Your ideal car? Anything that's
1: low cost, usually Ford. I've always owned Fords. Oh. Mustang's actually my favorite.
0: Your first job?
1: My brothers and I all worked at King's Dominion.
0: The last movie you saw? That's a good question. I think it was Think Like a Man.
1: Taraji P. Henson, I think. Think Like a Man.
0: You relax doing what? Nothing. I literally sit down,
1: thinking about nothing. I um, used to do that after I do my daily exercise. Your
0: favorite singer
1: or rapper? My favorite rapper and the only rapper in the world that really is the top is Rakim. My favorite singer is Mahalia Jackson. Behind that is.
0: Your favorite dance song? Ooh, anything reggae and go-go.
1: So you can pick any reggae song or go-go song, and,
0: and I'm dancing. What food do you eat every week, no matter what?
1: Seafood's my favorite food, and cheese is my second favorite. So if I can find something with, with I prefer whole crabs, but, and now I live in Baltimore, but I don't always have time to to steam the whole crabs. So for me, it's any kind of seafood, at least once a week. Usually not fish. Fish is not my favorite kind of seafood. But usually some kind of shrimp
0: or crab. Your favorite month? July. That's my birthday. Workout or hit the couch? Workout. Thank you, Dr. Dennis, for joining us on Black Entrepreneur Experience Podcast. Before we let you go, why don't you share with our audience the best way for them to connect with you and to do business with you and feel free to leave all your social media hands. Thank you so much. So
1: 365diversity.com, they'll find also my link tree on there. They'll find me on Podmatch as well. And I'm now on Instagram. Um trying to figure out Instagram still. It's not obvious to me. So they can contact me and contacting me would mean not just having conversations because you can hear my opinions on all these podcasts. I do public writing. So you can hear my opinions on various things. So I ask that people not contact me just to ask questions because I can't do free work. So if you want me to, as a consultant, we can discuss that. If you want me to do training, if you want me to teach courses, because I also still teach college students, we can do that. I also teach medical and health students and graduate students. We can do that. But please do not just try to do what people often do with Black women, where they say, let me just pick your brain and ask questions. I'm not. We're not doing that, okay? So anyone contacting me, it has to be regarding collaborating on some community-based work, something that actually has outcomes beyond just email correspondence. We're not going to be doing that.